Hi, welcome to New Hope Community Church Online. The sermon you are about to hear was originally given by Pastor Chuck Wilson. New Hope Community Church, to know, to live, and to share Jesus Christ. The title for today is Jesus Transfiguration Equals Our Transformation. Jesus Transfiguration Equals Our Transformation, Mark chapter 9. And as I was studying this passage, it kind of reminded me of the alien movies. A lot of the alien movies where, where someone is living on the earth. And there's so many of them now, it's hard to even mention one specific. But an alien is living here, but nobody knows they're an alien because they've taken on human form. And, and all of a sudden, they decide they're going to ex- expose themselves, show their true self, and they morph. You know, you can think of some of the aliens that morph. And some of them are really ugly and evil. And, oh, that's what they look like, you know, a giant insect or something. But oftentimes, more often, it's usually a bright, glowing, beautiful creature that emerges, kind of like an angelic being that emerges on these alien movies, and they show what their true form is. And, and that's what happens with Jesus today. We're going to look at his transfiguration, which shows the disciples and us what he, what he really looks like. He takes on his true form. He takes on his true form, what he really looks like before he became God and man and took on this human form. We're, we, they got a little glimpse of what he looks like today in heaven today. And I'm going to do part two next week, and I'm going to give you a little assignment. Next week is part two because there's a picture, a type of the transfiguration in the Old Testament. I'll give you a hint. It's in the book of Exodus. I'll give you that much. Book of Exodus. Also, there's a connection to the book of Revelation. So right from the start to the end, there's a, there's a connection to the transfiguration in the book of Revelation. Hint, Moses and Elijah. That's all I'm going to give you. Can you find one of them or both of them? The connections to the Old Testament and New Testament. But today, part one, we're going to just look at Mark chapter 9. Also, we're going to jump over to Luke 9 and Matthew 17, which are parallel pictures, parallel passages, and they give us a powerful picture of the transfiguration of Jesus Christ. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for bringing us through Several weeks of snow and trials and struggles and battles. We thank you for your mercy and grace. And now ask for your mercy and grace that your spirit would speak to us through your word and prepare us for communion this morning and communing with you every day. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I'm going to read the passage first of all. Mark chapter 9, starting with verse 1. And he said to them, I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come with power. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and a voice came from the cloud, This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, Why do the teachers of the law say Elijah must come first? 
Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him. Now we're going to hit the last couple verses next week when we do the, the Old Testament picture. But let's start off with verse 1 again here, where he, he, he says to him, now, Jesus is preaching to a big crowd, and he's just talking, remember the last thing we did here in Mark chapter 8, he was talking about the cost of discipleship and the need to carry their cross and how, how they're going to have to carry their cross and, and maybe even die for him. And so then he jumps into verse 1, he says here, talking about death and them dying on the, you know, his death, and then he says, and he said to them, verse 1, I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come with power. He said, you won't taste death until you see the kingdom of God come with power. He's preaching to a big crowd here, big, big crowd, about carrying the cross, dying for Jesus. And then he says something very interesting, probably really aiming at the disciples here. He says, some of you, some of you, he aims it right at them. He says, some of you, you're going to carry the cross, you're going to die for me, but some of you will see my power first. You've got to see my power first. Now, the most obvious fulfillment of this is the transfiguration. Some of them are going to get to see this. Three of them get to see the transfiguration. Some of them, right? But there also may be a double prediction here, double prophecy to his resurrection following his death on the cross. Eleven out of the twelve apostles here will see this, right? Eleven out of the twelve who won't see it? Judas, right? They're going to see the transforming power of the resurrection. That's going to transform them. And prepare them for the crosses that they have to carry. Verses 2 to 4, he jumps in to say this now. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there be, appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. Six days later... Now remember the hint in the Old Testament. You know, the, finding the type in the Old Testament, that's a big hint for you. Six days later, book of Exodus, be looking. He takes Peter, James, and John on a special retreat. The Yankees had their core four. Jesus had his key three, right? These are his key three. I had to bring in the Yankees, some, God's team somehow. But anyway, but now, now he picks these key three because they're special, right? They're super spiritual guys, right? Not, as we're going to see, they're not very spiritual at all. They're a lot like us, as we're going to see here in just a minute. But Jesus is preparing them for a special calling, a special purpose. These key three were key leaders in the New Testament church, and he's preparing them. And he only took these key three to certain events, as you see in the New Testament. Sometimes it was the whole crowd. Sometimes it was the, the 70. Sometimes it was the 12 apostles. And sometimes it was the key three. Remember back in Mark chapter 5 when he raised the dead girl? He only took... These three. Here at the Transfiguration, only these three. At the Garden of Gethsemane, when he goes to pray at the Garden, he only takes these three, which you're going to see they keep, doing this, they keep making the same mistakes when he takes them along. It's not time for all the apostles yet. Not time for the whole 12 to know exactly what's going on and who he is yet. Because who's in that mix? Judas, right? He, Judas doesn't get to see this stuff. All right? So it's only the key three. He takes them up to the top of the mountain on a special retreat. They probably didn't see it as a special privilege. They're probably thinking, why do are we walking up the mountain and these guys are relaxing down at the bottom, you know? You can imagine they're all whining and complaining, you know? And uh, they're not too happy about this. They're relaxing and we're up hiking up a mountain. We don't know which mountain it was. 
The Bible doesn't tell us, but we do know why they went up. In Luke chapter 9, verse 28, tells us why they went up. About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, James, and John with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. To pray. Now, why did Luke say about eight days and Mark said exactly six days? Another hint for the Old Testament type. Well, you're going to have to come back for the answer next time. But they get up to the top of the mountain and they went up to pray. And while they're up there, Jesus is transfigured. And it says his clothes, back to uh, verses 2 to 4, his clothes were dazzling white. We're talking about supernatural bleach. You know, they said no bleach in the world could have done this. Supernatural bleach. And in Luke 9, back to Luke 9 again, verse 29 says this. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed, and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. We're talking about lightning whitening here, right? It's a brilliant color, you know, brilliant white. And, and his face changed to it. Talked about his face changing. In fact, I want to go over to Matthew 17, verse 2, where it talks about exactly what happened to his face. In Matthew 17, verse 2, there he was transfigured before him. His face shone like the sun. And his clothes became as white as light, as the light. His face shone like the sun. It was just, have you ever looked at the sun? Really looked at it? Not for long, huh? Not for long. It, it was just amazing brightness. And it reminds me of when we were kids, we wanted to see the eclipse. And my dad had a welding helmet because he would weld. Whenever the machinery would break, he'd get out the welder and put on his welding helmet and weld. And it was just like this, this mask with this little slit with this dark green glass on there. And you could weld with it because it was so bright you wouldn't hurt your eyes. You would, my dad would be out there welding with his helmet on. And when we wanted to see the eclipse, we'd all go get out the welding helmet and we'd put it on and we could look up at the sun and, and watch the eclipses happening with that, that welding helmet on. That's what you would have needed to look at Jesus. Brilliant. Bright light. And the word for transfigured comes from a Greek word metamorphe. Metamorphy. What does that sound like? Metamorphosis. It's where we get the word metamorphosis from. Where the butterfly, the whole transformation of a, a worm to a butterfly. It's where we get that from. It's the metamorphy. And the idea of, of the Greek word metamorphy is, is a change on the outside sparked by an internal change, an internal power. And this is Jesus in his true glorified state. This is how he really looked before he came to earth. This is how he looked after the resurrection, this is what he looks like today. This, this is a picture of Jesus today. In fact, in Revelation 1, we see what Jesus looks like today. Because John gets another glimpse of him. John, the same guy who went up the mountain, gets another glimpse. And looks at what it says here in, in Revelation 1, verse 12. says this. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. This is John talking. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the seven lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. 
I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. That's what Jesus looks like. And if he appeared to us, we would all drop down like we were dead, just like John did. It would be overwhelming. No wonder Peter turned into a blubbering mess when he saw Jesus on this mountain. And Jesus wasn't alone there. Elijah and Moses were there. And why were they there? What do Moses and Elijah represent? The law and the prophets. The law and the prophets, which is what Jesus came to fulfill. Matthew 5, 17. Do not think I have come to abolish. Do not think I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. That's why Jesus came, to fulfill the law and the prophets. And he's, this is what he's talking to them, how he's going to fulfill the law and the prophets. In fact, back to Luke chapter 9, the parallel passage, where it talks about what Jesus was talking to Elijah and Moses about. In verse 30 and 31 it says, Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. And it says here that they're talking about the fulfillment. What was the fulfillment in Jerusalem? His death on the cross and his resurrection. That's what they came to talk to him about. And that's what was going to fulfill the law. He's talking to Moses about the law. Jesus is going to fulfill fulfillment, fulfill the righteous requirements of the law. How did he do that? He never broke the law. He never sinned. He never did anything wrong. He kept God's law perfectly. And then he took on himself the righteous requirements of the law. He took the punishment on himself on the cross. He's fulfilling the law. And he also is talking to Elijah about fulfilling the prophets. How did Jesus fulfill the prophecies? He fulfilled hundreds of prophecies about the Messiah being the Son of God to prove he was the son of God. That's how we know he fulfilled these prophecies to the, to the letter, to the T. It was, it, it, he, he fulfilled the law and the prophets. And then in verse 5 to 8, after he, he, they see this, what's going on, uh, in Mark, back to Mark chapter 9, verses 5 to 8, he says this, Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly when they looked around, they, were no, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. So Peter blurts out this incoherent plan. Why? Well, he was scared. You would be too, right? If we saw Jesus in Revelation 1, we saw him, we'd be falling on our face, we'd be scared. But there's another reason why he blurts out this incoherent plan that we have to look back to Luke again. Luke 11, uh, I'm sorry, Luke 9.32 tells us why he really blurted this out. Verse 32, Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. He was sleeping. All right, and, and, and just like the Garden of Gethsemane, sleeping, just like us, a lot of times we should be praying, we're sleeping, right? Uh, we should be listening to God, sleeping. He was sleeping. All three were sleeping. 
They're supposed to be praying, and instead they doze off, so he tries to talk his way out of it. Oh, oh, my, I, my, I wasn't sleeping. I was wide awake the whole time. I was concentrating. My eyes were closed because I'm concentrating on a plan. And this is my plan. Three shelters. One for you, Jesus. One for Moses. One for Elijah. Three shelters. Three tabernacles, which were considered special places. He's talking about a special place to come meet with God. Up on this mountain, come on up and, and come meet with God at these, these tabernacles, these shelters that we're going to put up, similar to the tabernacle in Exodus. Remember Exodus? When they wanted to meet with God, they would come to the tabernacle and that's where God was. That's where the, the pillar of fire and that's where the, the smoke and, and that's where they would meet with God. That's his tabernacle. And God's response is, Peter, shut up your face. He's like, shut up and listen. You know, that's what he's, what he's saying to him. Listen, he says, listen to my beloved son. Same thing he said at the baptism, right? But he's really saying, Peter, shut up. Listen to him. And many times he has to say the same thing to us because we are so busy making plans, our plans, good plans, that we don't listen to Jesus. You ever do that? Ever find ourselves doing that? That's why prayer is so important. A big part of prayer is being quiet before God so that we can hear from Jesus. Too often we're talking or sleeping and we're not listening, right? But also, there's another reason why God said, Peter, enough, be quiet, turn it off. There's another reason why he said that to him. Because Peter's plan to build a tent, to build a shelter, to build a tabernacle was not needed. There was no need for it. Because he was already looking at God's tabernacle. He was already looking at God's shelter. He was looking at that in him in the face. Jesus God was dwelling in a person. There was no need for a, a tabernacle. There was no need for another shelter, another place to come, because God was dwelling in a person. In fact, in John 1.14, he talks about this. In John 1.14, it says, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. He has made his dwelling among us. That verb form for making a dwelling is the exact word form that is used here for what Peter was saying, let's build a tabernacle. The same word that Peter used for a shelter is the verb form used of Jesus here in John 1.14. Jesus is the tabernacle. The tabernacle in the Old Testament was a picture of what Jesus would be, a place where God would dwell and where we could meet with God, the Father, through His Son. And there's no need for any of these. Just as God met with the Israelites in the tabernacle, He now meets with us in Jesus Christ. There's no need for anybody else, anything else, anything else. Let's connect the dots here. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus came to die for us, to pay the price of the law, to pay for our sin, that the law was broken. He came to pay for our sin on the cross. He took our punishment on that cross. That's why he came. So that we could have a relationship with God, his Father. He says, whoever believes in him, the word believe means to put our faith in. When we put our faith in Jesus Christ, his death, his resurrection, when we put our faith in him, at that point, at that moment of salvation, we can now connect with God 
any time through Jesus Christ. We don't need that tabernacle anymore. You don't have, to, don't have to build a tabernacle like they did in the Old Testament and come and meet with God. We don't need to do that anymore. There's no need for shrines or religious rites or religious people to bring us into God's presence anymore. We can come right into God's presence through Jesus Christ, His Son. We can have communion with God. That's what communion is all about. But we don't need to come to church to take the bread and the cup, which is we'd love to do it. We do that every month. But we don't need to do that. That's just a reminder of what we already have. We can commune with God any time through His Son, Jesus Christ. And that's what communion is, a reminder that we have this relationship. It's a reminder to purify ourselves. It's a reminder to, to reconnect with God and stay close to Him. That's what it does. We can commune with Him any time. But there's more. It's not just connecting, but God doesn't just... He, he doesn't just save us. He saves us for a purpose. He has a special plan for our life. A lot of people say, well, I just became a Christian so I could go to heaven. It's not just about heaven, although that's awesome. Heaven's going to be awesome. Guess why? Jesus is going to be there. A lot of people say, well, I can't wait to get to heaven and see my uncle and see my kid and see my grandpa and see, you know, and it's, I, I look forward to that too. Believe me, I, I say the same thing. But you know what? When we first get to heaven, you're not going to care about anybody. Our only focus is going to be Jesus. When we walk in, and he says, enter in, well done, my faithful servant. When we enter in, we're not going to take our eyes off of Jesus probably for the first thousand years. Not that anybody's keeping time. We're going to be locked down, and all of a sudden, Grandpa's going to walk up and say, oh, oh, you're here too? Because we're going to just be amazed and mesmerized in worshiping the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's going to be awesome. So heaven is awesome, but that's not the only reason he saves us. He saves us for a purpose. God has a purpose and a plan for us here. Jesus' transfiguration is all about our transformation. Transfiguration is about our transformation. When we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we become a brand new creation. A brand new one. When we say, God, I believe Jesus died for my sin... I repent of that sin. I don't want it anymore. I turn away from it. I put my faith in Jesus for forgiveness and to give me a brand new life in Christ. I give my life to Jesus. When we make that decision, we, we make that commitment, the, the Bible says we become a brand new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. We're a new creation, but the transformation process is just beginning. It's a lifelong process. We now have the DNA. As soon as you put your faith in Jesus, you are, you're, you're, a, you're an alien creature. You've got alien DNA. You've got Jesus in you. But, but what we become all depends on how much we allow Jesus to work in our life. It, it all depends on our, our communion with Jesus on a daily basis. That's, that's what it's all about. It's like the, the caterpillar, you know, the, the metamorphosis. You know, we talked about that. It's, it's the same word. It's like the butterfly. Jesus has given us a picture in nature of what is supposed to happen in us. The caterpillar, when it first hatches out of the egg, what does it do? It eats and eats and eats and eats. It's just hungry, and that's us. We have to be eating the Word. We have to be in the Word and, and eating the Word and hungry for the Word. And then it goes into a cocoon. And, and, and the, the, the caterpillar goes into that cocoon. And it's a safe place from predators. And we, as new believers, need to go into cocoons, don't we? We need to cut ourselves off from the world and, and the, the, the peer pressure and, the, and the, the stuff that used to, that wants to kill us. 
Just like it wants to kill the caterpillar, whatever wants to take us out, we have to put ourselves in that, that spiritual cocoon, a place that, and cut ourselves off from the world. But then the, 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 the caterpillar transforms into a butterfly and it fights its way out of the cocoon. It fights its way out. It fights its way out. And that battle, the battle, if you, if you were to take a cocoon and open it up and help the butterfly out, guess what you do to that? You kill it. You cripple it at best or, you, or it's going to die because the, the, cata, the butterflies, it fights its way out of the cocoon. That battle pushes the blood into the wings and, and, and gives it the ability to, to have the muscle to fly. And if you let them out, and we've, I've done it, you let them out, they're crippled and they die. We have to, the same thing with us, we have to go through trials and temptations and struggles and fight our spiritual battle and fight our way out of the cocoon. It's nice, we, gotta, we need that cocoon time in our life, but there comes a time we have to come out and, and do battle and fight. And, and, that's, and that's very important. And then the, the butterfly flies and we have to learn to, to soar on the, the wind of the Holy Spirit. Same thing. And then not only that, they have to reproduce and we as Christians should be reproducing, helping other people find Jesus Christ and other people fly. That's our, that's our job. It's a, it's a picture in nature that God has given us. But it all depends on how much we allow Jesus to work in our life. Romans 12, 1 and 2 says this. In Romans 12, 1 it says, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. We have to, we have to go through the same thing that I just talked about. The word here in Romans 12 where it says, he says, do not, be, do not be conformed, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The word transformed is, guess what word? Same Greek root, metamorphe, where we get metamorphosis from. It's the same picture of the butterfly. It's the same thing. We have to go through the same transformation process. Jesus Christ's transfiguration power gives us the ability to, to be transformed, but it's a constant transformation. How? He says, by the renewing of your mind. Our minds are the key. Everyone has a decision to make. We can either be conformed to the world or be transformed by Jesus Christ. And when he says conform, the Greek word for conform means to be squeezed. It means like if you take clay and you squeeze it into a mold, that's the picture of what he's talking about. And that's what can happen to us. We can be squeezed by the world into the world's mold. History, a little history lesson. King Midas, we all know King Midas with all, with all his golden touch, right? But they found King Midas. They found his tomb, and, and they found his, you know, they found all, the only thing they could find was his head. Everything else was gone. But they took the head, and they did this. You can even look it up. They did the whole computer graphic, what he looked like. But the crazy thing about Midas, King Midas, was his head was like shaped like a cone, cone-shaped. And because royalty... What they would do with royalty is they would bandage the head because they don't want to look like all the normal people with flat foreheads, you know, foreheads. So they wanted to make them look special. So they would bandage their head. They wrapped their head real tight when they're little with their skulls still forming. And they would, they would create this long, elongated effect on the head, what we would call cone head, right? That's what King Midas looked like. And everybody's like, ooh, here comes King Midas. Ooh, he looks great, doesn't he? But well, we think he looked pretty silly if we saw him walking down the street today. But he looked great to the world at that time. 
And a lot of us are like that spiritually. We look good to the world because we, we, we let our brains and bodies and, and personalities be squeezed into the world's mold. They think we look good. But God is looking and saying, you look ridiculous. You're a conehead. And that's what we do. I, I remember when I was a youth pastor. I was a youth pastor for 10 years. And, and I remember when I was first in youth ministry, MTV came out. And it was really hitting, and now MTV's so old, you know, it's no big deal. But I remember when that came out, that was, like, amazing. And all the kids, like, MTV, MTV, MTV. And, and I'm like, guys, I'm watching. I'm like, I don't know if you guys should be watching this. No, you shouldn't be watching this. And, and it was just a lot of garbage. And they did a study on MTV that the, the kids who watched MTV picked up the MTV attitudes. They picked up the, the, the sexual stuff. They picked up the language stuff. They picked up the rebellious stuff. The, the, basically, the study found that, that the MTG, MTV generation, the kids that were watching MTV, were turning out with, like the stuff they were watching on MTV. Big shock, right? And the troubling thing for me as a youth pastor is there was another study by Christians found out that one out of three, and I remember, I remember the number, one out of three Kids in America was watching MTV weekly. 44% of Christian kids were watching it. More Christian kids were watching it than non-Christian kids. And I was like, what's wrong? But it was, trend, it was messing up their mind. And that's what happens if we, that's what happens to us. Whatever we set our mind on, Romans 8, 5. Romans 8, 5 says, those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the spirit have their minds set on what the spirit desires. It's like a TV remote. Whatever you channel you set it on, it's going to go into your mind. And whatever we set our mind on, whether it's the sinful nature or the spirit, that's what we're going to end up like. It's not rocket science. It's whatever you feed into, whatever we feed into our mind is what we're going to act out on. It's what we're going to think about. It's what we're going to act out on. It's what we're going to become like. It's what we're going to metamorphose into. And we have a choice. We can either be conformed to the world or transformed by the renewing of our mind. How are we transformed by the renewing of our mind? It's by being in the word, by being worshiping. The music, instead of the worldly music, it's the worship music. It's the whole, being filled with the Holy Spirit. It's being in fellowship, hanging out you know, in, in fellowship with Christians. It's by being in prayer. It's becoming like Jesus Christ. It reminds me of when you go on a retreat. You know when you go on a retreat or a mission trip and you're on that trip and, and, you're, on, and, and you're like so close to God. Everybody's talking about God for three days or seven days and you're talking about God and you're just like, you wake up in the morning and you're just close to God. You go to bed, you're close to God. You're close to the other Christians. You're just like, you're, you're on this spiritual high, right? That mountaintop, right? You know, the mountaintop with God. Then we go home and we slide down that mountain. Yeah, well, I'll just start listening to this music instead, or I'll start hanging out with these people instead, or I'll start watching this instead, or I'll take a peek at this on my computer. You know, and next thing you know, we're far from God. I even felt it this being two weeks not being in church. Did you guys feel that? Not two weeks not being together. I felt it like the world, you know, the walls closing in. It's so important that we we have that time with God, with the Word, with with other Christians. It, it, to be transformed. And communion is the key. We're going to be celebrating communion here today, but it's every day. It's that communion time, staying connected to Jesus Christ and his power. And that's why we take communion today, to remind us to stay connected.
What it is, is we, we have the bread, which represents the body of Christ. We have the, the grape juice, which represents the blood of Christ. And we just uh, open it up. to. We have some music playing. After I pray, we're going to have some music playing. And people can come up and take it back to their seat. Or you can bring it back for your family if you want. One person can come up, take it back for other people, whatever you want to do it. But we, we, take the, we come back, and you can take it just by yourself, with your family, with... Uh, However God leads you, there's no right or wrong way. The only reason I would say don't take it is this. One, two things. One is you're not ready to put your faith in Jesus. You say, I'm not a Christian yet. I'm not ready for that yet. On the spiritual journey, that's okay. Nobody's looking around. Nobody's keeping attendance on this. If you're not a Christian yet, don't take it. But I hope you do put your faith in Christ. The second reason we shouldn't take the Lord's Supper is if we're not ready to surrender something. Something God has convicted us on. He's saying, you need to give this up in your life. It's a sin or it's a wrong attitude or it's something. And you need to give it up. And we're, we say, God, I will not surrender this. If we're not willing to surrender something, the Bible says don't take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy way. Very, very important. to. Uh, but, but I hope everybody here surrenders. Surrender whatever you have to surrender. I hope, you, I hope that we do that. Let's pray. How is God speaking to us on this communion Sunday? Maybe you're here today and you've never become a new creation, a new person in Jesus Christ. But the Holy Spirit is speaking to you, and, and today's the day to make that decision, to make that commitment to Jesus Christ. You can do that. You don't need a, a religious ritual, you don't need a rite, you don't need a a religious place. It's just between you and God. It's your heart to God's heart. It's a prayer from you to God. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Just say, God, I, I need forgiveness for my sin, for the, all the laws that I've broken, all of God's laws that I've broken. I, I repent of that. I repent and ask you to forgive me. I put my faith in Jesus. I believe he died on the cross for me. He rose again from the dead for me. I put my faith in Jesus. And I'm going to follow him. I give you my life. I give my life to you, God. I'm going to follow you. Forgiveness, faith. And follow. If you've prayed that prayer this morning, you may not fully you may not fully realize it yet, but you've just become a brand new creation. You've become a, a new person in Jesus Christ. You've become an, an alien with the DNA of Jesus Christ in you. I want to encourage you to let somebody know. Maybe you came with a friend or family member. Let me know. Tell me on the way out. Fill out the card. Something. But most of all, you can now start to take advantage of communion. This morning coming up and taking the communion, but even, even far more important is daily communion. You can talk to God anytime about anything. Through his son Jesus Christ, you can come to God as your father now. For those of us who are already Christians, we've already put our faith in Jesus Christ. How is the Holy Spirit speaking to us for this communion service? Jesus' transfiguration is all about our transformation. 
What is our mindset on? Sin or things of the Spirit? What are we feeding our minds? Are we being transformed? Are we, are we stuck in the worm stage? Are we stuck in the cocoon? Are we maimed spiritually? Are we asleep spiritually? Are we, are we in prayer? Are we asleep in Jesus' powerful presence? Or are we in prayer? Father, we pray that your, that your spirit would speak to us and, and draw us close to you by your mercy and grace through this time. In Jesus' name, amen.